the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Standard text and... The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown, good Lord, show me the way. Let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, fathers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown, good Lord, show me. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sinners, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sinners, let's go down, down in the river to I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown, good Lord, show me the way. Was the day of Pentecost a one-day event to start the church, never to be repeated again? Was the baptism of the Holy Spirit just for the first generation of the church? And if it's for today, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? If I don't speak in tongues, does that mean I haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit? What are tongues?
What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit for? We've been answering these questions and looking at them yesterday and again today using the words of Jesus and today focusing more in on the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles led by William Seymour where Pastor Ray and Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel, and we're very happy that you've joined us today. Welcome, Ray. Thank you. And as we share today, one of my very real concerns is that you perhaps could get the impression that we think ecstatic experiences are wrong. That's not so. I have had experiences, as has Alexandra, where the Holy Spirit in real power has come to change our hearts, to encourage us, to demonstrate that we've been born again. These wonderful encounters with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit, even perhaps speaking in some kind of language or non-language, a static prayer utterance. These events are spiritual experiences. They are not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we draw our definition from the words of Jesus. He said, John truly baptized in water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He said this to the disciples about 10 days before they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So Jesus spoke specifically of this baptism when he said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, that is all of Israel, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the definition of the Pentecost baptism of the Holy Spirit is a power that is sent from God, from heaven, that enables us to be the witnesses of Christ beginning where we live and to the uttermost ends of the earth. So our life then is utterly given over to the gospel commission. Whether you work in an office, a radio studio, the government, wherever you work, that's your mission field. Yes, and I am so grateful to see, I see these wonderful young men and women out on the field fighting against abortion. And I see how they struggle to make a little bit of progress each year. And I'm so eager for these young men and women to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then we will quickly see clinics closed We'll see legislation passed. We'll see a huge repulsion in the hearts of men and women against abortion. That comes by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is for the advancement of God's kingdom on the earth. There is another aspect to this baptism. It was not simply a baptism of wind, power, but John the Baptist said he would baptize his followers in fire. That is, Jesus would. Jesus would baptize in fire. Now, when Jesus was baptized, he was baptized in the water, and as he came up out of it, 
the Holy Spirit came as a dove upon him. There were no tongues of fire. Why? Because Jesus had already a pure heart. There was no sin found in Jesus. But for those of us who come to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, in the Pentecost baptism, not just a spiritual experience, the baptism must consist of two parts. Fire for the utter purification of the heart. Holiness. And then comes power. Power to witness for Jesus Christ and to change the world. Yes, so our goal today is to show very simply, we're going to focus more on the history aspect today, of how the Pentecostal Church and the charismatic movement started in the United States. And as you'll see, it spread quickly throughout the world. And the backdrop for understanding this, this was a time where the church was commonly teaching that we were truly in the last days, that there was about to be a great outpouring of the Spirit of God on the saints, and this would result in a worldwide revival, and that Christ would then return. This was not just one little group teaching this. This was rather commonly taught throughout the church in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And so what we see in response to this kind of preaching on the imminence of revival, on the imminence of God pouring out his spirit and power, we see Christians pressing in for this experience and receiving it. Praise God. And so what we'll see today is truly the beginnings of a worldwide revival. And I have no doubt it would have continued had Satan not been able to get in there so effectively and really derail it. But the promise is still for us today. We do still believe that God does intend to pour out his spirit. As it says in Joel, this is the new covenant promise that all of us would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, that God's kingdom would come on the earth as it is in heaven, and that Jesus Christ would then return to reign for a thousand years with his saints. Now, now, now part of what we want you to see as we, before you go into any of the history of Azusa Street, we want you to see the deception that came into the church that sidetracked and derailed the great revival that God wanted to bring forth and how bickering emerged and how false doctrine began to be promulgated. Yes. And so the confusion that we see among Pentecostals and Charismatics today actually stems out of a few issues that arose shortly after the Azusa Street Revival. So they were never really resolved, but some splits occurred in the revival movement, and those have continued on to today. So when we understand what the movement started as, and then where those splits happened, that helps us make sense of the seeming confusion and disagreement that we see today among those who do believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's go into some of the history. Now, let's review some of what we shared yesterday. Yes, yeah, so we're sharing the story of William Seymour, who was born in 1870 in Louisiana. Both of his parents had been slaves who were freed, praise God, 
after the Emancipation Proclamation. When William became an adult, he started to travel, and this was a period known as the Great Migration. So over a million blacks traveled from the south to the Midwest and to the north because there was greater freedom there, there, was, there were more work opportunities, northern employers were incentivizing this kind of migration with things like um, relocation, cost covered, higher wages. So William Seymour was one of these men. He traveled first to Indianapolis, then um, he traveled to Chicago, and finally he ended up in Cincinnati. And while he was in Cincinnati, he joined the Evening Light Saints, which were a holiness group that taught first regeneration, or the new birth, in which you were freed from sin, secondly, sanctification, in which the old man or the flesh or the sinful nature was entirely removed, and third, they were preaching that there was an imminent outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which would be an, a personal Pentecost experience for every believer. Now, before you go any further, do you understand what was just said? This was the standard belief of conservative Christian people in America. This was the standard belief of the holiness movement, which was out of Wesley, the Methodist. Everyone believed this. So I want you to go through those three steps again. Yes, yeah, so this was the particularly in the holiness church, they believed what Wesley developed as the first work of grace, which is the new birth, where you are freed from sin, you no longer commit acts of sin. The second work of grace, also, also called entire sanctification or heart purity, you would often hear people praying for a pure heart. Lord, give me a pure heart. What are they talking about? They're talking about after their conversion, though they had been saved from sinning, they were no longer sinners, they loved God, their will was given to do the will of God, but they felt that their heart still had this kind of animosity or laziness or impurity or uncleanness toward God. And so they never acted on those things because they loved God and they had been converted but they were getting tired of continually having these inner temptations come up to which they had to say no and fight against. So the second work is the removing of those things. The book of 1 John describes it as perfect love that casts out fear, a pure heart. And now third, they were coming to the realization that there was to be power to fulfill the Great Commission and that God was going to pour out his Holy Spirit on the saints, on those who were holy throughout the world and bring in a worldwide revival before the return of Christ. This motivated so much of the social reform and evangelistic activity of this time. This motivated the abolition of slavery. It motivated the women's suffrage movement, the right for women to own property, it motivated the temperance movement, which resulted in prohibition. And Alexander, what's stunning in all of this 
is that today almost all religious experience is looked at through the lens of my own personal life. These people were not looking at this through their own personal life. They wanted personal relationship with Jesus. They wanted a pure heart. They knew that it was a work of grace. It was not by works. It was by faith in Jesus. It was a gift, even as conversion is a gift, a supernatural gift from God. Likewise, being given a pure heart is a supernatural work of God. But they wanted these things in order to go that next step and reach the world for Jesus because he was coming again. Yes. There was all across America in 1844 the teaching, the the Great Awakening. There was the teaching of the midnight cry. There was the cry, it's time to get ready for heaven. And they didn't want people to go to hell. They didn't want them to be lost. And so there was a great movement of missionary activity, of evangelism for the sake of the lost. Yes, so our our brother William Seymour is in Cincinnati. And in 1902, there is a smallpox epidemic. And William Seymour catches the smallpox. He's sick for three weeks, and during that time, he nearly dies. He does live, but he's left with near blindness in his left eye and a lot of scarring on his face. But during these three weeks, he came to grips with what he had long felt to be a call of God on his life to become a preacher. Yes. Now, up until this point, he had been waiting on tables in hotels which was considered a good job at that time. He was able to support himself with a nice standard of living as a hotel waiter. But he recognized through this smallpox crisis that he needed to devote his life to preaching because that's what he felt God had called him to. So shortly after his recovery, he was at a meeting of the Evening Light Saints and he went forward to the altar and he was there sanctified, meaning he had a pure heart from that experience. He refused to leave the altar until he had assurance that he had received the second blessing. Now, shortly after this, he encountered Parham, who was a teacher in Topeka, Kansas. And Parham and 34 of his students had actually been baptized in the Holy Spirit in 1901. By 1905, they were in Texas, and Parham was heading God's Bible school, and William Seymour went to attend. And interestingly, this was a period where white and black students were not allowed to be in the same classroom because of the Jim Crow laws. So Parham said, I'll leave the door open, and you can sit outside the classroom and still hear me while I'm teaching. So this is how William Seymour was able to get his education sort of a little workaround of the laws. Now, Parham was again teaching the same thing of the second blessing that cleansed and purified the believer and the third, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that brought power for service. Now, I love William Seymour. He was the Moses of Pentecostalism. Yes. Anything else you want to share before... 
we go to 1906? That's where I was headed. Good. In 1906, William Seymour, now committed to be a preacher, was invited to go to Los Angeles to preach a series of meetings. He didn't have a church. He had not been appointed to a church. He arrived there and immediately began in the first sermon to teach this doctrine of, what would I call it, speaking in tongues as a sign, foreign language, not gibberish, foreign language, not a static language. He was there teaching this new doctrine, and people didn't like it. And they also didn't like he preached that divine healing was the birthright of every child of God. And he also taught that the return of Christ was imminent. So it was those three issues that caused a lot of opposition to him in the holiness community. And so in the church, the leadership put a padlock on the door and would not let him come and preach again. He was locked out. And a family in that church who had enjoyed his sermon invited him to come and live with him, with them. And in that place, on Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles, they began to pray and press through for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there was much opposition from the church. Yes, yeah, so Seymour arrived in February 1906, and... Shortly after his arrival and he began teaching, there was an attempt carried out by one of the holiness pastors, Reverend Glenn Cook, where they called Seymour together with some of the other holiness leaders to bring up accusations against him. And we see much about Seymour's character revealed in this brief description. It says, I was not alone in this effort as many more preachers and gospel workers began to gather and contend with Brother Seymour. But the contention was all on our part. I have never met a man who had such control over his spirit. The scripture that reads, Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them, was literally fulfilled in this man. No amount of confession and accusation seemed to disturb him. He would sit behind the packing case and smile at us until we were all condemned by our own activities. Although almost all of the holiness people who attended continued to reject the preaching, all had a secret reverence and admiration for this man who really lived what he had been preaching for years, a sanctified life. It was the wonderful character of this man whom God had chosen that attracted people to keep coming to this humble meeting. And people did come as they prayed through. And do you have the story there of the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Yes. So, as I said, Seymour arrived in February 1906, and a prayer meeting began which lasted for about two months until there was a breakthrough. And what's interesting is that Seymour had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And yet others said, well, we do believe you, even though we, even though you haven't received it. So we'll join you in praying with you for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the breakthrough happened on April 9th, 
1906, the prayer group had decided to fast together because they felt there was an anticipate anticipated that there was an imminent coming of the Holy Spirit. And one of the man, after about three days of fasting, became sick and so was un unable to attend the meeting. And he asked Brother Seymour to come and pray for him. So on April 9th, which was a Monday, Seymour visited this man whose name was Lee, and he was actually a janitor. And Lee asked Seymour to pray for his healing. And also, he pr asked Seymour to pray that he would be baptized in the Holy Spirit right then and there. So Seymour did as he was asked. And immediately, Lee was healed and he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was caught up in praises that neither he nor Seymour could understand, but that astonished both of them. Both men radiated joy and peace and more besides. Within an hour, they had returned to the Asbury home where the prayer meeting was and shared the experience of what had just happened. Lee stood, raised his hands, and opened his mouth. As before, he poured out a sound that was beyond comprehension, but full of meaning. The entire room fell to their knees as fires of baptism ignited spontaneously among them. Joy, chaos, beauty, sound, songs, Nothing could be defined, but everything could be felt. Some were crying, some dancing. The Asbury son decided to flee, perhaps out of fear, but the rest stayed, and all were feeling the intensity of a personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. The servant girl from across the street, Jenny Evans Moore, approached the dark wood piano, lifted the lid, and played a simple melody, high up, rolling, harmonized with simple chords, given greater depth and tone by her pure voice. She sang out in French, first of all, then in other languages, Spanish, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Hindustani. Interpretations came from all over, each interpretation reflecting the theme of God's glory and the power of his presence. Perhaps it was her relatives who wept the hardest, for they knew the truth that the rest of the congregation suspected. How could a girl without education have ever hoped to learn the piano? She did not know how to play the piano. She just sat down and started playing it. And how could she, with no knowledge of, Eng of any language except English, utter such words? In all these other languages, she, she sang in French, Spanish, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Hindustani. She sang in six different languages, which she did not know, and played a piano, which she did not know how to play, as the baptism of the Holy Spirit fell. Did you want to comment on that? Only that when the Holy Spirit comes, it is holy chaos things begin to happen that are totally outside of the norm. That's why they're called supernatural. And as that happens, it encourages, and the purpose of it is to encourage the believers 
to know that God is with them and that he's going to direct their path and he's going to carry them. And this little prayer meeting exploded in size. People came running from the neighborhood asking what is going on in this house. Yes, so let's continue reading what happened. So this young servant girl, she's playing the piano and singing. Everybody else is also being baptized in the Holy Spirit at the same time. And there's what is called a glorious chaos as they spill out from the parlor onto the porch. And there's a street right in front of the porch lined with trees. Now there, all of these believers who had just been baptized in the Holy Spirit were shaking, praying, and experiencing their own Pentecost. And just as, as happened on the original day of Pentecost, there were observers who were fascinated. By Tuesday morning, a crowd of onlookers had gathered around the Asbury home, wondering what on earth was going on. But these were no passive bystanders. Within the house, as well as outside of it, things were getting increasingly dramatic. The faithful, who had been there to experience the gathering momentum, found themselves caught up in an experience that no one had seen before. As people crowded closer to listen and to see what was going on, many found themselves drawn into a first-hand encounter with God's Spirit. Of those who were not speaking in tongues, Seymour may have been the most surprised to find himself on the peripheries. He was not yet baptized in the Holy Spirit, even though plenty of others were. Yet his role at this time appeared to be equally important as he began to explain the occurrences to the waiting audience. Soon it was as if the porch became the pulpit and the street became the pews with Seymour drawing together the threads, making the connections, and provided the opportunity for others to join in. So many decided to join that at one point the crowds on the front porch proved too much for the timbers and the structure began to give way. Other things would have caught Seymour's attention too. Up until Monday, April 9th, the assembled faithful had been all black. But on Tuesday, as this crowd gathered, there was an increased interest from neighbors and passers-by, many of whom were white. There was no altar, no separate seating, and no color line. What there was could not be so easily prescribed. Men and women in trances of up to five hours each, and healings that had been ruled out of range of the possible by the medical profession. One such miracle happened to Emma Cotton. She had severe facial cancer, as she later would describe it. The noise of the great outpouring of the Spirit drew me. I had been nothing but a walking drugstore all my life, with weak lungs and cancer. As they looked at me, they said, Child, God will heal you. In those days of that great outpouring, when they said God would heal you, you were healed. For 33 years, I have never gone back to the doctors, thank God, nor any of the old medicine. The Lord saved me, baptized me with the Holy Ghost, healed me, and sent me on my way rejoicing. Pentecost had come, 
people whispered it, believed it, and saw it there in black and white. Yet Seymour had still not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. For three days, the power increased at the house on 214 Bonnie Bray. And it wasn't until April 12th, three days after the initial outpouring, that Seymour stayed up praying after everybody else had left, and he said, I am not going to give up. According to Douglas Nelson, a scholar, this is how Seymour's experience went when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He kept on alone, and in response to his last prayer, a sphere of white-hot brilliance seemed to appear, draw near, and fall upon him. Divine love melted his heart. He sank to the floor, seemingly unconscious. Words of deep healing and encouragement spoke to him. As from a great distance, he heard unutterable words being uttered. Was it angelic adoration and praise? Slowly, he realized the indescribably lovely language belonged to him, that he was speaking it. A broad smile wreathed his face. At last he arose and embraced those around him. Now, this revival just kept going. Less than 100 hours after the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the house they were meeting in was too small to contain the number of people who were coming to the meetings. At this point, they moved to 312 Azusa Street, which is where the revival gets its name, the Azusa Street Revival. They were able to lease it for $8 a month. Now, people continue to come to these meetings, and- now, let's say just a word about that building. Mm -hmm. It was filled with cobwebs, it had a dirt floor, and the street in front of it was a dirt street. This was the humblest kind of building. It had been a church, but a fire had burned in it and taken the roof off, which was the only distinguishing mark for this plain clapboard box, is all you can call it. It was now a flat roof building. This was the humblest of places and it would seat about a hundred people. Uh, they didn't have any backs on their chairs. They had benches. Those benches were made of anything they could find that would support a plank of wood. But there were far more than a hundred people in there. The descriptions of these meetings say that the people were piled three deep, pushed against the walls, sitting on the windowsills, yep. and then there were hundreds more outside of the building listening. They don't know how many people packed in. It could comfortably take a hundred people, but they reported that 800 to 1,000 people packed into that so that people were afraid they would suffocate with hundreds still outside trying to get in. This is in Los Angeles with no air conditioning. And this is in a black district of Los Angeles, which was a very poor area, God chose to birth this revival, if you please. I'm shy of saying it. In a manger, in the humblest of circumstances. 
Yes, and after the revival started, it quickly shifted to being a mixed group. It wasn't just blacks, it wasn't just blacks and whites, but it was attracting every kind of person to this meeting. One example of some men who came to the meeting were three construction workers, and their, their boss paid for them to come to the meetings. They couldn't afford to go. So they arrived and met several of the members there who were female and they began to pray with the workmen. And very shortly after these women began to pray, one of the workmen fell to his knees weeping and got, as he put it, soundly converted. The workman happened to be a Roman Catholic and proved to be the first of many to make the jump from Rome. Later, there was one man in, in particular who was miraculously healed of a club foot. When asked about his conversion, the man's reply was simple. Conversion? I no understand. All I know, one day Jesus, he jump into my heart. <laughs> the story indicates one of the bricks of Azusa's success. For a while, the pastors held up a whole program of how one was to be saved until they came to see that God was doing something they didn't recognize. We had made, as, as one pastor says, we had made our own formula that one must do so and so and repent according to the letter of the formula. But that doesn't always work out to be God's way. People were just coming and the Holy Spirit was there and was just confronting them, converting them, and they didn't even have the religious language to explain what had happened. The story is told of a pastor who came dressed in his suit, in his Sunday best, and he approached about two blocks away, and the Holy Spirit fell on him, and in his beautiful suit and white shirt, starch, he fell on his face on the dirt street and began to weep. And so when he got to the church, finally, his face was muddy. But he found Jesus. He was converted. This pastor found Jesus and was converted. It's this kind of power we're interested in. Not just interested, we want by the by the blood of Jesus. Yes, yeah, so the first meeting that they had after they moved to Azusa Street, their first meeting had 100 people, and within a week, they had three meetings a day with no discernible be beginning or end to each meeting. Everything just merged into one another. And as people gathered, there was one woman who shared a testimony it was, sorry, it was again Jenny Evans Moore, the servant girl. She shared her testimony of what had happened. And following this, there was an unexpected interpretation of her strange words given by Ruth Asbury. Ruth's words were few, but she said, this is that prophesied by Joel. She prophesied of armies, judgment, and destruction. But the message was clear to Rabbi Gold, a rabbi named Gold, 
and the reporter from the Los Angeles Times who he brought with him to the meeting. This is on April 17. So the initial outpouring occurred on April 9, and on April 17, they're rolling with three meetings a day and this prophecy. Now the rabbi hears the prophecy and is converted on the spot, while the reporter is shocked and amazed some hours later. They're shocked by the sense of something powerful yet invisible rampaging through the room. They're by the praying, the weeping, the laughing, the rejoicing with each other. They described William Seymour as the old exhorter who stood at the front urging people to let tongues come forth. You know, part of what shocked this reporter was he saw black and white people with their arms around each other, weeping over each other, rejoicing and dancing together. He was astonished that there was absolutely no color line between black and white. I want to say to you, in our culture today, we still have a great deal of racism on the part of whites and the part of blacks. When the Holy Spirit comes, that racism is destroyed. Amen. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be black or white. We're going to be red, red in the blood of Jesus. We're going to be one people. All nationalities will blend as one in Jesus. And this racism we see today horrifies Jesus. Yes, why is it that we still have white churches, black churches, Spanish churches, Korean churches? Why is this happening? We need to have one church, God's church, Jesus' church. Now at this meeting where this reporter saw all this happening, the prophecy that was given out was that there would be an awful destruction of Los Angeles unless the city turned to God. Now what's significant about this is that within weeks of this prophecy, there was an earthquake that struck Los Angeles. And in response to this earthquake, these newly empowered men and women were just out there calling sinners to, and saying, this earthquake's a wake-up call from God. You've got to get to God. And so it actually furthered the revival. The revival was greatly en enhanced by this earthquake and the Christian's response to it. But what I want you to really hear clearly is that this revival is not just a personal experience with Jesus. This revival actually moved people to go out and witness and share in the Holy Spirit with others and have them converted and have them baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yes, and within four weeks, the group grew from 100 people to 1,300 people. That's the kind of growth we're talking about. One person described it as, the power of God has agitated this city as never before. Pentecost has surely come, and with it the Bible evidences are following, many being converted and sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues as they did on the day of Pentecost, 
the scenes that are daily enacted in the building on Azusa Street and at missions and churches in other parts of the city are beyond description. And the real revival has only started, as God has been working with his children mostly, getting them through to Pentecost, and laying the foundation for a mighty wave of salvation among the unconverted. And what ended up happening, this revival continued utterly unhampered for two years. They sent missionaries around the world. They, the money was flowing and they just were able to finance missionaries. They didn't even keep records of how they spent the money. The people who came would stuff bills into William Seymour's pockets and he didn't even notice it. So it was quite an incredible revival, and they began a newspaper describing these events called the Apostolic Faith that had a circulation of 50,000 within these first two years. Well, let's come back to something that you just shared. There was something vital that was... Yes, listen to this. God had been working with his children, that is, with people in the church, mostly getting them ready to go through to Pentecost and laying the foundation for a mighty wave of salvation among the unconverted. Well, what was that foundation? Well, that's what Alexandra shared at the very beginning. Conversion sanctification with a pure heart, holiness, consecration, utter consecration to God, and then being ready to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the foundation here is that Christians were receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They were experiencing their own personal Pentecost. and But, but let's be clear, this foundation had to be laid in place before they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yes, you, you can't just jump into the baptism of the Holy Spirit unless you are already a Christian. The baptism is for holy people. Yes, but what I'm, I want to just say very clearly is that the lost are not saved outside of Christians being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Revival does not come outside of Christians being baptized in the Holy Spirit. God brings revival by baptizing his people, just as he did on the day of Pentecost, yes. with power and purity to win the lost. Yeah. And this is where we've gone into error today in the church, is we have very much emphasized outreach, go, go preach the gospel, and yet we lack this foundation of the personal Pentecost baptism to have the power for God to bring revival. And so what do we do? We want to have an outreach into a community. So let's set up a bouncy for the kids. Uh, let's serve some free food. Let's, and all kinds of ideas flow. I've even seen an Easter egg hunt where they dropped Easter eggs from a helicopter. And then you have uh, the Kennedy program of, of evangelism. Uh, you have all kinds of strategies for getting into the community. At Azuzu Street, they didn't do any of that. The Holy Spirit moved in power. 
Yes, I really want you to hear this, that revival comes through men and women who are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You can't have one without the other. You and can't those... have revival without being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you can't be baptized in the Holy Spirit and not have revival. And you can't be baptized in the Holy Spirit if you are not with a pure heart before God. If you have not been sanctified, you cannot be baptized in the Holy Spirit. There has to be that deep inner crying out to God. Utter consecration. Yes, and I just want to emphasize something I shared yesterday. To receive this power, we first have to accept that our life work is the work of the gospel. In other words, we have to consecrate ourselves to God. If we haven't decided that our life work is the work of the gospel, why would God give us the power to do the work? It's just like an employer doesn't walk out on the streets and start handing out name tags and uniforms and menus to strangers. He gives those to his employees. And so he trains those employees. I say this because I meet many, many Christians today who I do believe have been converted they have evidence in their life that they've been born again. They do not like to sin. They do not sin. They avoid sin. They're committed to living a righteous life. And yet they have failed at taking up the work of the gospel as their life's work. So they say, well, I'll just make sure that in my career that I don't sin. And they think that that's the extent of what God wants from them. And that is utterly missing the whole point of the gospel, which is that the kingdom of God is to come on the earth as it is in heaven. So the call is for every single Christian to say, I'm going to devote my life to bringing the kingdom of God. I'm going to devote my life to winning the lost. I'm going to devote my life to abolishing sin. And then once you've made that commitment to the Lord, then you can go to him for the power, for the personal Pentecost baptism. Frankly, there is no need for you to have a Pentecost baptism if all you want is a religious experience, an ecstatic even religious experience, and you want to live your life as a Christian, but your goal is not to build the kingdom of God. You do not participate in the Great Commission. Instead, you just want to live a good life, a normal life, and the Christian life is the one you've chosen, well, you're in trouble because that's not the Christian life. That's the cultural Christian of America. In China, men and women are laying their lives down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a whole movement among Chinese people to send missionaries to Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries. And they have a funeral before they leave home because they don't expect to ever come home. They expect to die or be martyred in Saudi Arabia or another Muslim country. These people are utterly sold out and they will go and become a slave in that Muslim country. And you know, that's not a pleasant experience in order to witness for Jesus. But here in America, we want our ecstatic experience. We want to go have a, a 
a baptism in the Holy Spirit, and, and then we can enjoy the warm fuzzies from that. But there's no salvation of the lost. There's no laying down of our lives for the gospel. The true baptism of the Holy Spirit requires the laying down of our lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to men. It is not given as a religious experience. So we've not meant to be offensive to you, but if you've had ecstatic religious experiences and they've been an encouragement to you, they have been to us as well. But we've not been baptized in the Pentecost power. Don't say, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit if you've simply had an ecstatic experience. But you don't have the power to heal the sick or to convert the lost. And your heart is not given utterly to the kingdom of God. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. And I was just thinking there was a wonderful song written during this time period called For a Worldwide Revival, yes. which we sang at several of our revival meetings. But it really encapsulates the, um, the Christian teaching and sentiment of the time. I'm being told we have only 90 seconds left. I wanted to share the book we've been reading from today is by Craig Borlace called William Seymour, A Biography, The Story of an African-American Leader Who Launched the Azusa Street Revival and the Pentecostal Movement. It is an excellent book. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee. And I'm Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. So Pilgrim's Progress is moving toward the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I pray you're coming with us. And we would even invite you to consider coming and praying with us. If you're interested in more information, call me, 703-489-1785. Visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. Listen to this message again and past messages. God bless you. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.